This episode of Food Psych is brought to you by my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. If you're ready to leave diet culture behind and reclaim the life it stole from you, learn more and sign up at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. Welcome to Food Psych, a podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, body liberation, and taking down diet culture. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm an anti-diet registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor, offering online courses and programs to help people all over the world make peace with food. Join me here every week as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food and their bodies. Hey there, welcome to episode 178 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today I'm talking with Aaron Harrop, an eating disorders researcher who studies eating disorders in higher weight people. We discuss how anorexia is treated or not in folks of different sizes, how diet culture and weight stigma influence treatment and recovery for disordered eating, the problem with the quote-unquote atypical anorexia label, how improving eating disorder treatment in people in larger bodies can benefit everyone, and so much more. I can't wait to share our conversation with you in a few minutes, and I think you're going to love this one. But first, I'll answer this week's listener question, which is from a listener named Lauren, who writes, Hi, Christy. So quick history. I've suffered from numerous eating disorders over the last six or seven years, including anorexia, bulimia, and binge eating, but went to treatment for two very intensive years, including therapy of some kind for four or five days a week at an outpatient eating disorder clinic, and was doing well when I left. But in the past year, I think I've developed full-blown binge eating disorder. I don't understand how when I do not restrict my food anymore. I really don't. I haven't for ages, and I don't think I could diet anymore if I tried. But anytime I get remotely stressed or unhappy or sad or bored, I panic eat all this food. I secretly eat at work because I'm so ashamed. I still try to then have my next meal, but I feel like I will gain so much weight if I keep doing this because at the end of the day, my calories are so high. But then if I restrict my next meal, I know that's how you perpetuate the cycle. I'm so lost and so down about it. I feel disgusting about myself and honestly can't even look at my body in the mirror anymore. Please, any advice would be amazing. Thanks for your amazing podcast. So thanks, Lauren, for that great question. And before I answer, just my standard disclaimer that these answers and this podcast in general are for informational and educational purposes only and aren't a substitute for individual medical or mental health advice. So first of all, I just want to send a huge amount of compassion your way. It's so understandable that you'd be distressed about this, especially because you feel like you don't restrict your food anymore. But I want to let you know that I'm actually hearing something very different in your question. So I'm hearing that you're beating yourself up for the binging and that you secretly eat because you're so ashamed of eating and that you're afraid of weight gain and that you're still roughly estimating the number of calories you eat in a day and judging yourself for that, and that you feel quote-unquote disgusting. And all of those things are actually forms of disordered thinking about food and body size, and they're creating restriction and deprivation in your mind, even if you aren't actively dieting the way that you used to. Those self-judgments and that weight stigma that you're exhibiting towards yourself are examples of what's known as the diet mentality, which is the beliefs that you've absorbed and internalized from diet culture. So diet culture is what's out there in the world, the system of beliefs that demonizes some foods while elevating others, stigmatizes larger bodies while elevating smaller ones, promotes weight loss as a means of attaining higher status, and actively oppresses people who don't meet up with its standard of quote-unquote health or quote-unquote beauty. 
So that's diet culture. It's out there in the world. And the diet mentality is how diet culture has taken root in your mind. So you've got some major diet mentality going on there, I can tell just from your question, and addressing that is going to be the main key, if not the entire key, to healing your binge eating disorder. And I say it's the main key because it's possible you've also been using food or perhaps the restriction of food as a coping mechanism in a way that predated any diet mentality stuff. I can't tell that from your question, but some people do have that experience, although it's definitely rarer than the experience where the diet mentality is the entire cause of the binging. So either way, in any case, you know, the first thing you have to do in order to stop the binging is to recover from the diet mentality and stop beating yourself up over binging, fearing weight gain, counting calories, and all the rest of those disordered mental things you're doing to yourself. And that is obviously easier said than done. So I'd really recommend getting back into working with an eating disorder savvy therapist and dietitian on a weekly basis, not quite as intensive maybe as you were before, but you know, you definitely need a touch point with a treatment team if you don't have one already. And finding a treatment team who's well-versed in health at every size is super important for being able to let go of that internalized weight stigma. So I've finally gotten around to starting a list of providers that I would recommend for helping you do this work. And you can find that list on my website at christyharrison.com slash providers. That's christyharrison.com slash providers. It's just therapists and dietitians right now, but I may be adding medical doctors by the time you hear this too. But it's really just providers focusing on eating disorder recovery and disordered eating recovery in a sort of outpatient sense, you know, a sense of having a treatment team to really do the work that you need to do to undo those disordered behaviors. So once you've really worked through the ways that the diet mentality is hanging on for you, then if there's any lingering binging as a coping mechanism, you can choose how to, how to address that then. But you can't get to a place where you even know whether binging would be a coping mechanism in the absence of restriction until you stop the restriction. Because in many cases, the restriction is what's causing the binging to feel like an emotional coping mechanism or for you to feel like you're an emotional eater, when in reality, it's the deprivation that's actually causing those emotions and that's causing you to turn to food. And in your case, that restriction is manifesting primarily as mental restriction rather than physical dieting, although there may still be some physical dieting that's going on too at a subtle level that you just don't recognize. So I would encourage you to really dig in and look at whether you're like eating less or serving yourself less than you actually want, whether you're telling yourself something at the end of your meals that's making you stop earlier, whether you're pushing off meal times, like telling yourself you can't eat until later, even when you're actually hungry, or telling yourself you have to be at a certain level of hunger in order to deserve to eat. Things like that are actually physical dieting too. They just might not seem like it when you've been through such intense eating disorders in the past and had such a ramped up degree of dieting behaviors before, just so you know, those lower level behaviors are still dieting. So I would explore that for yourself as well. And I talked about all of this, especially the part about giving up the restriction in order to even see whether binging is a coping mechanism still or emotional eating is a coping mechanism still. I talked about all of that in episode 151 with Judith Matz. So I would encourage you to check out that episode for a deeper dive into all this stuff. You can get it wherever you get your podcasts or at christyharrison.com slash 151. 
But the bottom line is that you actually are still restricting, even if you don't recognize it as such. And that is a driving force behind the binging. And by the way, the eating disorder treatment you received may have allowed the diet mentality to continue or even fan the flames of it if you didn't go to treatment providers who are explicitly committed to health at every size. So in my conversation with Aaron Harrop in this episode, we talk about that. We talk about how diet mentality and weight stigma amongst eating disorder clinicians and treatment centers can hinder people's recovery and keep them stuck in this sort of pseudo-recovered place. And so that's not to bash your treatment team because I'm sure they did a wonderful job in so many ways, but it's just worth reflecting on whether they inadvertently might have reinforced diet culture beliefs or allowed them to continue, including if they focused a lot in treatment on resisting binges, because that's something I've seen a lot where people get so focused on resisting binges that it really reinforces the shame that diet culture already places on eating, quote unquote, too much. And so it actually can keep people stuck in the eating disordered mindset. So I would reflect on that. I would look for a treatment team who gets health at every size and intuitive eating. I've listed some of those providers on my website, again, christyharrison.com slash providers, as well as links to some other directories you can look at if you don't find anyone who's a fit on that list. So I hope that helps. And I would really encourage you to accept and open up to the fact that you, yes, indeed, are still restricting, at least at a mental level in a pretty significant way. There's some pretty significant diet mentality and disordered thinking about food and body size going on for you. And that's likely leading to some lower level dieting behaviors in your life as well that you might just not be recognizing as such. And so I would start there, always start with the restriction and always look for the hidden sources of restriction whenever there's binging, including that mental level restriction that you might not even think of because it's just part of the fabric of how you think about food and your body, which of course makes sense because we live in diet culture. You've been steeped in diet culture your entire life and you've struggled for years with serious disordered eating. And so of course you're going to have lingering disordered thoughts and attitudes around food and body size, but it's just important to keep pushing through and keep working to the next level of your recovery because right now you are in this sort of pseudo recovered state and there is so much more that's possible for you. There's so much more life beyond this kind of disordered thinking and being with food. And there's life without feeling like you're rebound binge eating as well. So I would encourage you to unpack all of that and explore all that. And I hope this was helpful. If you want to submit your own question for a chance to have it answered on an upcoming episode, you can go to christyharrison.com slash questions. That's christyharrison.com slash questions. And then if you want to ask me any question you want and have me answer it a lot more quickly than I can here because we're very behind just because I get so many questions on the podcast, you can join my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals, which has a wealth of audio and written content teaching you the principles of intuitive eating in depth, plus an exclusive monthly Q&A podcast where you get to ask me any question you want and I answer it in a much more timely manner. And there's also hundreds of answers I've given to other participants already. So you can listen to those and work through all kinds of different sticking points and stumbling blocks in intuitive eating and really start to put it into practice in your own life in an authentic way. When you join the course, you'll also get access to our private Facebook community exclusively for course participants. So you can have real-time guidance from me and my staff and hundreds of other great folks who are already in the course and on this intuitive eating path with you. 
If you're ready to leave diet culture behind in 2019, come join the course and become part of this amazing community of people who will support you on your journey to intuitive eating. Learn more and sign up for the course at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. Plus, now through New Year's, we're offering gift subscriptions to the course. It's the perfect present for that loved one on your list who needs some anti-diet energy in their life. And who doesn't? Am I right? So you can do that or you can put it on your wish list so that your friends and family know how to get it for you. Just go to christyharrison.com slash gift to get it. That's christyharrison.com slash gift. This episode of Food Psych is brought to you by Poshmark, an amazing app you can use to shop from millions of closets across America. I use Poshmark myself to save money on clothes, and I often recommend it to my clients who are recovering from diet culture because it's a great way to make sure you have comfortable clothes that fit the body you have now, and Poshmark helps you sell the stuff you don't wear anymore so that you can trade in those triggering clothes in your closet for some cash in your pocket. Shop from a great range of brands all across the size and gender spectrum, including plus sizes and kids' clothes as well. You won't believe the deals you'll find, and shipping is super fast and easy for both the seller and buyer and is handled all through the free Poshmark app. When you see something you want, simply make the seller an offer so that you can get items at a price that works for you. And when you're ready to get those old clothes out of your closet, listing on Poshmark is incredibly easy. Just upload pictures of your stuff to the app, set a price, and then ship to the lucky buyer. Today, you can get $5 off your first purchase when you enter the invite code FOODPSYCH when you sign up. Just download the free Poshmark app, sign up, and enter the code FOODPSYCH, that's F-O-O-D-P-S-Y-C-H, for $5 off your first purchase. And just a quick announcement to let you know that we'll be off next week for the holidays, so we'll be reposting one of my favorite and my listeners' favorite episodes to help you have some self-compassion at this tricky time of year. And then we'll be back the following week with a brand new episode for the new year, all about helping you navigate all of diet culture's sneaky, quote-unquote, wellness messages this time of year. They're both really awesome episodes that I'm psyched to share with you, so be sure to subscribe to the podcast to get them delivered to your device as soon as they drop. Just go to christyharrison.com slash subscribe to do that. It's christyharrison.com slash subscribe. And now without any further ado, let's go talk to Erin Harrop. So tell me about your relationship with food growing up. Well, I think in my family, it was definitely a bit complicated, which I think is true for probably many people. I grew up in a family of dieters for the most part, where there was definitely kind of like women's foods and men's foods. So there were the more diet okay foods that were kind of more focused on for the women in my family. And then the men seemed to have more freedom to eat what they wanted. And so that was one section of food for me growing up. And I would say kind of my most positive memories of food had to do with learning how to cook with my grandmother. So she pretty much had me in the kitchen from Actually, I was, I think, like three or four years old when she was like teaching me how to use knives and, you know, peel potatoes and cut vegetables and just like participate in the process. And I carry that like style of cooking that she taught me like to this day, like I still tend to be very creative and I don't usually follow recipes. I just kind of go by taste and smell and the basics that I learned from her. That's amazing. So like intuitive cooking in a way. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually, I was joking with my daughter about this earlier because she has, she also is, I like that intuitive cooking. She's, she's experimenting. She's learning like, oh, we need to saute garlic before we add it to something or, you know, how do you season things? And I, I think in the beginning it it resulted in a lot of foods that I probably would not ever make again today. (laughs) 
And the rule was that like I had to eat it if I made it because they didn't want me wasting ingredients. So I would definitely like make a lot of things and pretend to like it and then share it with people to try and get them to eat it for me if it was not a great one. (laughs) (laughs) But then as I got more practice and started learning what things worked and what things I enjoyed, um, it's just become a lot more fun. That's awesome. Did your grandma kind of let you have free reign then and like pick ingredients or did she give you a little guidance around like, okay, this goes with this or chop this and add it to that kind of thing? When I was like learning with her and we were making something together, she would kind of tell me what to do or she would be like, okay, when it gets to this color or this consistency, then we do this next step. But in terms of my own experimentation in the kitchen, I was pretty much given full reins. So um, it resulted in things like garlic fried pickles, which would not recommend. (laughs) (laughs) And other things where I would try to maybe match like the color of something. Like once I tried to make a frosting with just flour and milk because I wanted it to be white. So those were like some of the failed experiments. But on the flip side, (laughs) um, now I definitely have an idea of okay, here's kind of a base set of of cooking and skills and tastes. And I can kind of go from there to build outward, I guess. Yeah, that's huge. I feel like that's kind of a rare thing for people to have in this day and age, but it's so important and so helpful. Yeah, it's, it's definitely one of those things that I, many of my friends that are my age don't have that kind of like skill set. And I'm, I'm really grateful for it. It gives me the ability to kind of play with food and create things that people usually like (laughs) and are often maybe different than what you might see kind of on a standard menu, I guess. That's cool. So more creativity. Like, yeah, I think when you learn those basics of how to tell when something's done or how to know just like cooking the basic components of something, it does give you a lot of freedom and creativity. Mm Mm-hmm. So how did it evolve for you then throughout your childhood and adolescence as you grew up in your relationship with food? I think for me in childhood and adolescence, I started to, I continued to enjoy the the playing with it. And I really like took on baking with a lot of gusto in my adolescence. It was definitely a bonding activity with my friends in middle school and in high school. And then I think on the flip side of it, as those like sociocultural pressures around thinness and good and bad foods started to leak and it definitely influenced my ability to enjoy the food that I was making in terms of all of a sudden for me um, as I became more aware of what was okay in our culture for like women to eat or to be seen eating then it became harder for me to maybe eat the things that I cooked and so I still kind of maintained that creativity, but I definitely went through a period where I tried to like make the same awesome creative food, but with like more, I guess, diet focused ingredients to, you know, can I change this out for this and still have it taste good? And there's definitely a time when I convinced myself that my food was just as good with (laughs) these kind of more substitute ingredients. But now with a different level of food acceptance that I have today, I can see how, well, like A, it, it didn't taste as good. It wasn't as as fulfilling. And B, just being able to like cook without those rules, you know, without trying to think about like, well, what actually 
like without focusing on like a calorie content, like how do I limit the calorie content of the food, which is what where I definitely started taking things in a more disordered place in my adolescence and young adulthood. But coming back to that, how do I recapture like this taste? Like how do I make this chicken taste exactly the way my grandma made it taste? Or how do I take this macaroni and cheese recipe that I have from her and how do I make it actually even better? <laughs> so those are some of the things that I've kind of so, yeah, I think I've been all all over the gamut with that. Yeah, it's so interesting, too, this idea that you can convince yourself that something tastes just as good. You know, like, I totally remember that in my dieting days and disordered eating days of, like, substituting things. Because that's so what diet culture is these days. It's like, here's the healthy hack for this food or whatever. <laughs> like, do this one without gluten and this one without dairy. And it's, yeah, I think so easy when you're in it to convince yourself that you really like it. I mean, there's a part of you that still knows, I think, but it's like the desire for pleasure and the desire for satisfaction gets subsumed to the desire for thinness. And so it's easy to just kind of tell yourself like, well, this is good. This is good enough. I'm, this is just as good. And I'm being healthy, quote unquote. Yeah. And then that idea of like, how do I come back to this and figure out what I actually do like? Because I... Yeah, I've definitely experienced that a lot where for the longest time, like I couldn't figure out how I liked my lattes <laughs> and I had to experiment with different types of milk, you know, trying cream instead of milk and, you know, different ratios of like the amount of espresso. And yeah, I, I, I get a little picky. Some I'm from Seattle too. Um, in Seattle, we are very specific about our coffee. <laughs> I try to do it not in a overly obsessive way, but there's definitely a right ratio for me with espresso to vanilla to mm -hmm. milk. <laughs> <laughs> and that's so, I think that is like such a common thing too for anyone who's been chronically dieting or disordered eating for a long time. Like to come back to pleasure as an organizing principle, as a guiding principle is so foreign at first. And it, I feel like I've worked with a lot of clients who are like, wait, what do you mean what do I want? What do you mean choose something that tastes good? Like what about the vegetables or what about the carbs or whatever, you know? And it's like, no, but actually what do you genuinely want? And I think that that's one of just one of the many things that diet culture takes from us really is this ability to pursue what we actually want. But I think it, it spills over into so many other areas of life too. Yeah. And I, I think kind of like what you're saying, as long as we have some of those remnants of that diet culture like still in our heads or even just on an unconscious level it can make hearing that inner voice really challenging and then for me at least too i definitely had these kind of i had to be patient with that bounce back period of like it might be that my body is actually like leaning towards this type of food for a while and you know i can remember that in specific times like coming out of periods of deprivation where like I was like, man, I feel like this is definitely more ranch sauce than a normal person would be wanting right now, but this is what tastes good to me. And trying to find the bravery to like stick with it and give my body a chance to like make it through its like little ranch craving, knowing that it's going to come back to a place where maybe it seems like a, a different amount of ranch that's satisfying for me or, you know, with the coffee thing, right? Like, there was a time when I just had like brevets with like the full cream because that's what tasted good to me. And today I do that sometimes when I'm in that place and other days milk is just fine. So I think having that trust that 
A, my body doesn't always want the same thing. And B, if it is consistently wanting something for a while, that may or may not change. And C, even if it does consistently want something that might feel scary or or challenging to me in my head, that doesn't mess everything up. It's not the whole sum of my diet or my intake that it, I don't think I've ever had a period when my body just wanted like all of just one food. It was always presenting with different types of things, even if some of them seem more challenging or um, intimidating at the onset. Yeah, that's such a good point that it's, I mean, it does take a lot of trust and bravery, right, to get through that place because when you've been told your whole life or you've internalized messages that say these foods are bad and you're bad for wanting them or you shouldn't eat them, they're going to kill you or whatever, it's really hard to go against those internalized messages even when you know those messages are crap and like you're ready to move on. I think it still takes a lot to make those choices day in and day out. Yeah. And I think sometimes in intuitive eating, we just, we have that idea that like, okay, well, once you do this, your body just becomes magically intuitive and you're very attuned to it. And you just listen to your body and you eat what it tells you to. And it just tells you to eat this like amazingly balanced, diverse palette of beautiful rainbow foods. (laughs) (laughs) And for me, that just hasn't been the case. (laughs) Um, I don't think it's been negative or necessarily, but I just, I guess my plates rarely look like the really pretty ones on Instagram with kale and the avocado slices on a piece of toast with fresh mango and like little tendrils of other green things. Like it's it's usually like, well, maybe that's like my, you know, kind of casserole roots coming through. (laughs) It's a lot less pretty. (laughs) Oh, same. I mean, I can't imagine. I feel like it's just so time consuming and expensive to eat that way. You know, the way that like Instagram wants you to eat. And yeah, my food is much less pretty than that too. And I feel like In a way, if people, I mean, I think that that sort of assumption that, oh, intuitive eating means I'm going to eat like that and my palate of food is going to be this beautiful rainbow of like whole foods and unprocessed things, quote unquote, and like nary a sweet will pass my lips. It's like, (laughs) (laughs) you know, what is that? I feel like that expectation is coming from diet culture, you know, and I totally had that expectation for myself too. And when I wasn't eating like that was sort of like, oh God, is there something wrong? Am I doing intuitive eating wrong? Like I very much remember that feeling, but I think it's intuitive eating has even gotten twisted in the service of diet culture in some ways, you know, that the wellness diet has co-opted intuitive eating too and has made it made it out to be like, you eat like this and you'll be this thin white Instagram person who goes <laughs> to soul cycle all the time. And, like, <laughs> you return to your natural roots of wanting like all this whole, yeah, right. oh gosh. Yeah, that like the quote unquote natural way is that. Yes. And, and yeah, really, it's not. It's so much more diverse than that. Yeah, like you said, you know, you don't have the same exact craving every single day, or maybe you have it for a while and then it changes and it you become more interested in variety or something. But it's not like you start eating intuitively and suddenly you find this like magical balance. Cause I think also <laughs> you're like when you're restricted, I always talk about like the restriction pendulum, you know, like you pull yourself all the way over to the side of restriction. You have to swing over to the side of like feeling like a little out of control or like 
kind of, you know, it's like free falling, kind of like you're in this, this place of feeling like you're eating, quote unquote, too much, but it's really the equal and opposite reaction that you have to have to the restriction. And eventually, maybe you will stop swinging so wildly, you know, and have like more gentle swings the way that people who aren't restricted do, but it can take time. Yeah. Yeah. So what was that journey like for you then and getting into your work too? Like how did you go from a dieting teenager and trying to kind of make substitutions and restrict your food and stuff to now the fat studies and anti-weight stigma scholar that you are today? Well, I think dieting is probably putting it lightly. I would definitely say it was clinical eating disorder. Just acknowledging that in terms of, I don't want some of the things that I described to sound like, oh, this was normal for any 15-year-old. But I think for me, coming out of that food fear, it went step by step, you know? And once I finally, for me, I had very subpar recovery as long as I had what I would consider like a, a normal standard traditional dietitian. And by that, I mean someone who kind of like gave me a list of good things to eat and bad things to eat. And was this like an, an eating disorder specific dietitian or just sort of regular? You know, I went to her for an eating disorder. I don't know how specifically trained she was. <laughs> so it was definitely like, here are these health smoothies that might help you get healthier kind of thing. And oddly enough, my eating disorder did not get better in that lens. And it wasn't until I had more of a, a haze-based nutritionist that I was able to actually start encountering some of those fear foods, making more peace with it. And and I do say that it was like step-by-step step because I can remember some of those first steps that were really big steps, like taking a vitamin or eating a popsicle, like things that actually felt like quite challenging to me at the time. And now looking back, if someone told me to eat a popsicle every day, I'd be like, okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if they told me to take a vitamin, I might be like a little bit more resistant because I just, you know, it'd be one more thing to remember, but it wouldn't be about like, oh, this feels wrong for me to do this. So I think it was a lot of those little steps. And for me, I, you know, I just, I remember rediscovering food daily and weekly. I actually have probably about 80 pictures of me with first foods, eating a food after not having eaten it for a long period of time. And so I, I tried to celebrate it instead of feeling ashamed about it. So, you know, I just kind of carry This is back when we had disposable cameras. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I like, you know, would carry this disposable camera with me and it, it's like, oh my God, we're eating burritos today. Okay, like let's get a picture of me with this burrito or we're having burgers or, you know, I'm I'm having a scone. <laughs> like, you know, all those things that for me were big firsts for me or like I am drinking a milkshake with a meal. Things that were things that I, that violated kind of the rules that I had in the past. I started to kind of celebrate them. And then, you know, with that step-by-step -step thing, it's just been... A very, very long journey for me, decades long. And one that I think in terms of the Hayes work and the fat acceptance work that you brought up, I think one of the things that kind of stalled me out in my own journey for a really long time was not wanting to explore beyond a certain point in recovery. 
and I think we see this in eating disorders sometimes where we get recovery to a certain point, but maybe then that recovery meal plan becomes the new eating disorder. And those exchanges or types of meals that you're supposed to have in recovery become a new way of the good way to eat. Yeah. It's like the diet, the recovery diet. Yeah. So I think over the years, that's been where haze and fat acceptance has stepped in for me in terms of like, how do I push beyond that? I still have a treatment center meal plan on a card in my wallet today, and I don't follow it anymore. But there was a long time when I did, you know, and it was every meal looked, it might look different, but I was still trying to eat a certain number of exchanges. And today, I think that's where haze and fat acceptance has kind of push the bubble on my relationship with food is trying to really see like, where is my eating disorder potentially showing up in different ways today in ways that hold hands or partner with diet culture? And how do I still try and dig up some of those roots where it's still sticking around? Yeah, that's such a good point that it really, I think diet culture allows for that too, to like get to recovery to a certain point. And then without haze and intuitive eating sort of stepping in, I think it's easy to just say, okay, I'm recovered. This is good enough. I mean, that's where I was for many years too, in this sort of gray zone of like still disordered eating, but it wasn't a full-blown eating disorder and it wasn't so severe that people were noticing or anything. You know, it was just like, yeah, I'm a little weird about food, but so is everyone. It's so easy, I think, in diet culture to kind of be like, everyone's a little weird about food. And and it's <laughs> sort of true, you know, because of because we all are all steeped in this philosophy and this mindset of, you know, making us fearful about food. Yeah. And of weight too. I mean, I think that's yeah. The added piece, right, is like when you're someone in a larger body, when you experience weight stigma firsthand. And of course, we all experience internalized weight stigma from the culture that just tells us being fat is bad. But when you are having to face it and go to doctors who tell you to lose weight or whatever, you know, or have, God forbid, like eating disorder treatment professionals who are like, well, don't gain above a certain, you know, this is as much as you get to gain in recovery or whatever, then it's like this whole other layer of just being really hemmed into this box by diet culture. Yes, I would agree. And I'm actually, I'm glad you brought that point up because I think often in, even in eating disorder treatment, it can be so easy to focus on the food as if the weight doesn't matter. And we say that all the time, right? Like we say like, okay, we just want to normalize your eating and this weight thing, that'll just kind of take care of itself when we normalize your eating. But that is definitely not how it works out in practice. And I would say that that was another one of the things that held me back in addition to kind of that rigid adherence to that that meal plan was that I didn't have eating disorder providers that could kind of like see the big picture of what weight meant. And as somebody who had actually been restricted from a very young age and throughout all the critical points in my development, we didn't have like a good idea for where my body should stabilize. We didn't have like a reliable growth curve (laughs) that was not influenced by restriction and exercise. And so that was a big stumbling block for me in, in recovery was that, you know, the, (laughs) I, I, I saw this provider who was, who's very capable and very detail oriented. And, you know, I had the DEXA scan that told like how heavy my bones were and how dense they were and how big they were. And I had 
this electronic imaging that measured all of the body fat and all, all the different parts of my body. And I, you know, I had all of these like fitness and endurance tests that measured like my muscle capacity for different types of exercises. And they did all of this stuff and they came up with this pound range where they thought my body would go in recovery. And I don't like I was out of that range. Like I was higher than that range before I even left the first level of an inpatient treatment center. And I would probably guess to like, I know today that I am significantly more than that pound range that they gave me. And, you know, I mean, I've had serious medical complications, like at a much higher weight since then. And so, you know, I think sometimes we we have this idea that if we if we do all our math right as a clinician, right? Like if I know exactly how my client is eating and if I know exactly all these things about their body and if if I get them to eat perfect, that their body is going to do this beautiful recovery thing <laughs> and that that beautiful recovery thing is going to look the way that I expect it to. And at least for me and my experience, people had no idea what was going on with my body. And what that the message that that sent me at a certain point was that recovery was wrong or that I was doing recovery wrong at some of the points when I had the most freedom from the eating disorder in my life. And so I think we have to be careful about what we tell people recovery looks like in a body and what we the kind of expectations that we set up for people in terms of what does it like we not we might not be doing weight restoration because we not might not have a place that we're restoring to that prior point might have been during a time when the person was restricting and compensating and so like we might not know where that restoration point is because their body's never had a chance to actually grow and fully develop and for me like i grew 2 inches in my 20s <laughs> Wow. <laughs> you know, with food. <laughs> so I think knowing, I don't know, I think giving our bodies permission to do what they need to do in recovery is scary for both the patient and for the clinician. Cause we just, we, I think sometimes as clinicians, we can get on board with the person's fear of food or their fear of fat. And so I think that is particularly important when we're thinking about higher weight eating disorders or people who are having those disordered eating behaviors at the higher end of the weight spectrum. Oh, that's such a great point, especially because I think, you know, it's like clinicians can get on board with people's eating disorder mindset to some extent. And then also because we live in diet culture, I think we all have an eating disorder mindset to some extent, you know, that diet culture instills these disordered beliefs about food and bodies that, clinicians even might carry in with them, you know, especially body size, even if clinicians have done a lot of their own work around their relationship with food. I think it's rarer for clinicians to do their own work around their relationship with size in terms of accepting all size bodies, you know, because oh, like, yes. <laughs> it's like we can get supervision or therapy and sort of learn to accept our bodies at the size they are now if we're like, thinner bodied clinicians, you know, but if you're still, if you're like a smaller bodied clinician and you're still afraid to some extent of your client getting into a larger body, like you're absolutely just going to collude with the eating disorder on that point. And, and it's not even, you know, there's really no hope to sort of challenge that at that point. Yes. And I, 
I think too, especially like maybe you've even only seen this person as a thin presenting individual or a person presenting at what you might consider a, a quote fairly like normative BMI. And I hope you can hear the quotes around those words. But I think it can be hard to hear or to like to a like to see a person's body and body type change. You know, for me, I went from a very thin presenting individual to somebody whose body is what I consider fat today and not from like an eating disorder mindset, but fat in that reclaimed sense of the word. And so for providers that I had that had only seen me as a thin presenting person, like I, I often wonder like what was going through your mind as my body was, was becoming fat? Like, <laughs> were you worried? You know, and for me, luckily I had a team who very much was more concerned with my eating behaviors and my health. But I know that had I had a different team, maybe when I came in and I said, oh God, I feel like I'm just eating so much. Maybe they would have been like, oh, well, what are you eating? Right? Instead of always bringing that critical ED nutritionist mindset that I hope we can bring to our patients when they say, oh God, I ate so much. And you're like, oh really? Well, what felt like a lot to you? <laughs> you know, instead of bringing that curiosity that I would hope that we could bring anybody who's having some kind of judgment around a food or a type of food or amount, I know that had I walked into a different office, I could have received the message that that I was in fact eating too much when for me, at least my eating disorder has looked like something that has always been consistently restrictive. But yeah, that that's something that I see with my participants in the research study a lot, that they just, they receive very different feedback from clinicians. I've definitely seen that as well in my work with eating disorder treatment centers, both as a, an intern when I did observe people relating to clients and eating disorder treatment centers, and then as a clinician myself, you know, networking with their treatment providers there. It's like some of the messages that people in larger bodies got from treatment centers were just mind-boggling. It's like, of course, the person's struggling with, you know, when they're getting these messages, like, what are you doing? And it's not, I think it's just a, a lack of awareness and a lack of sort of going that extra level of unlearning diet culture, not just unlearning the eating, dis you know, not just sort of self-reflection on making peace with your own body and your own food, but getting diet culture out of your head so that you're not imposing those beliefs on other people's bodies and so that you're not like, are you sure you need that extra snack? You know, <laughs> like, ugh, God. Oh my God. What? Oh, so terrible. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I would love to talk more about your research and first kind of like, how did you get <laughs> involved in doing this research and find your way to health at every size and then dig into like what your research is actually finding? Yeah. Well, I think like many of us in the eating disorder field, I actually can't think of anybody who doesn't have some kind of like personal connection. I know, same. Either through a friend or a family member or themselves. But I definitely came, I knew kind of from a young age that I wanted to do something with eating disorders. And I think it was more in my, oh gosh, it would have been like late 20s that I kind of started focusing a little bit more on a what we call atypical anorexia and weight stigma. And for me, that came out of a personal experience where I 
presented with atypical anorexia. I had previously been what we would call, quote, typical anorexia. And then I now, because my body was larger, had the same eating disorder. At least I perceived it to be the same. It sure looked and felt and sounded the same. But my body was larger. And I actually had two inpatient experiences, one at that typical level and one at an atypical level. And looking back at the treatment experiences, they were so different. And if I hadn't already had so much training in haze from my like decade of treatment prior, I can only imagine that, I mean, I mean, I, I actually, I did need treatment after I came out of treatment. And so I, I can only imagine what it would have been like if I didn't have access to those resources. And so that was kind of, for me, one of the start of like, what is going on? That experience was just so formative in how I started to think about weight bias and the fact that for me, from my lived experience as a person, <laughs> this was pretty much, I was kind of reliving a very similar eating disorder that I had had in my youth. But for all of my providers, at least in this particular center, I was treated just very, very differently where it really was. Like you said, you made that joke about the extra snack. I had like an hour nutritional session about like whether or not I could put cheese on a sandwich where I was advocating for cheese because everybody else had it. And I was feeling, even though my eating disorder didn't want me to have it, I just didn't want to stand out. And I was like, you know, really like what does one slice of cheese have to do with anything? Like this has no, <laughs> this will have like no long-term impact on like my physical health whatsoever, but it has a really big impact on my mental health when I'm with my peers and everybody else has cheese and I don't. And so things like that where like it's that's just like not your standard anorexia patient conversation. Like <laughs> no. And so I think those that experience in particular was very formative for when I did get to a different place in my recovery, coming back with the idea that this is not how treatment should be for folks whose bodies are heavier, we need to do a better job of it. And just really seeing how some of the kind of standard ways that we practice eating disorder treatment can really cause harm for folks in larger bodies. And I would argue that that also causes harm for folks in, quote, normal weight or thin bodies, because anytime that we are partnering with fat phobia or we are norming or okaying thinness as as preferable to fatness, we are really subtly reinforcing the lies of an eating disorder, whether that's for somebody who's higher weight or for someone who's lower weight. So I think by focusing on how do we improve treatment experiences for people in higher weight bodies, what we're actually talking about is how do we get even better at beating eating disorders? Like, how do we get even better about finding their lies, finding those sneaky, subtle places where they are looking like health or looking like normalcy or looking like beauty and kind of like trying to get that out of our, or at least like bring it to light so that we can actually treat those parts. And have a critical dialogue about them too, right? Like, yes. not let them just be sort of unconscious. Yes. That's such a great point. And you're right that it really is just like, that's what good care looks like for eating disorders is not having weight bias in the picture because weight bias is like what got people to this point, right? Weight bias is, is a large part of what creates this disordered thinking about food and bodies. And so if we're reinforcing that in our treatment programs, then we're just 
taking away people's ability to recover. And it's no wonder so many treatment programs have such high recidivism rates, honestly, you know, with that sort of mentality. Yeah. And can we call it out when we see it? You know, you you have a fat staff member on a treatment team and you have patients that are afraid or mocking that fat staff member. How do you use that as a teaching moment? And like, how do you call attention to like, hey, what's going on right here is weight-based discrimination and it's not okay. And this is part of the root of your eating disorder. Like, no, we're not going to, we're not going to have this fat person. We're not going to put them over here and not have them eat with you anymore because you're afraid of their body. I mean, as long as it's okay with this poor fat person who's being mocked, (laughs) right? But we're actually going to talk about this. You had this behavior, you had this joke or whatever that came up in this treatment milieu that you're, you know, and we're actually going to talk about it and what it means and how it connects to you and your own fears or the fears of the eating disorder. I know. How amazing would that be if treatment centers could do that? And it's an uncomfortable conversation for sure. And it's there's a lot of nuance to making sure the person is, the, <laughs> <laughs> the fat person is comfortable being in that conversation, of course. But yeah, it's just, it, I think that would be revolutionary. And yet it's not what we see, right? I mean, I'd love to hear some of what you've found in doing this research on, well, you know, higher weight anorexia and and just the idea of why it's even called atypical in the first place, you know, like what, what's that about? Uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm actually, I'm working on what in research we call a, a systematic review. So that means you look at all of the research out there on a certain topic and kind of evaluate it for how good is its quality and what does it say? And you try, cause you can find like a study anywhere that says anything pretty much. We really want to know, like, was that actually a good study? And if that was a good study that said that one thing, have other people found the same thing? Or was that just kind of like special to that one little area of the world? So yeah, I am working right now on a systematic review of all, <laughs> all, all, back to 2007 when we first started looking at changing the DSM to include a category for higher weight anorexia. And many of the studies out there have found that what we call atypical anorexia is actually more prevalent than what we call typical anorexia, which would be that underweight version of anorexia. Um, And there are other studies that show the opposite, that it's less common. One thing, though, that I, I think is kind of missing in this literature is even when we are saying that we're looking at higher weight anorexia, many of these research studies still have what I would consider a very small weight range that they're willing, that they have participants in. So these are participants who are still either in what we would consider the normal range of BMI according to current BMI standards or patients who are just slightly out of that, who are just slightly above. And so we're not actually seeing what higher weight anorexia looks like across the weight spectrum. And I think many of those folks who are having that restrictive eating disorder behavior, but are still at higher weights than we would consider, they they seem to be put into like another category even, like this unspecified. And I think that's because there's a lot of resistance to classifying someone with a much larger body as having anorexia. When in fact, when, we, when we're actually looking at just what people are reporting in terms of their behavior, their intake, their compensation behaviors, 
we can actually see that disease of anorexia manifest across the weight spectrum, whether that's underweight, quote unquote, normal weight or in higher and much higher weight categories. So yeah, I, I'm not a fan of calling it atypical. I think just by the nature of the word, it sounds othering. I just think of anorexia as a disease where people intentionally restrict and starve and use unhealthy compensatory behaviors. That's kind of what I think. And I think sometimes people lose a lot of weight, especially if it's the first time that they've tried it. And then I think as people get older and have done these behaviors for longer, often weight loss is not coming forward as a primary symptom or people's bodies may actually gain weight while engaging in these in these self-starvation behaviors. And so I think as long as we continue to rely on weight as a primary indicator of the disease, we're going to miss many people who have not only mentally significant disorders, but we're going to miss people that have clinically like medically significant disorders. And that's another finding from the review that I'm doing right now is that kind of regardless of weight, we're seeing similar medical symptoms manifest for folks. And so it doesn't even seem to be a good indicator, weight doesn't even seem to be a good indicator of like when a person needs medical attention. That is huge because I know so much insurance and care decisions are based on whether a person is quote unquote underweight and that would allow them to get reimbursed for a typical anorexia diagnosis. And also, I think a lot in a lot of clinicians' minds, and I know I used to be like this too, it's thought that the weight loss causes those medical complications. And in fact, it's not actually the weight loss at all that's causing them. It's like the act of starvation, right? Which is different than weight loss. Yeah. So I'm curious if you can illuminate that part a little bit. Yeah, so that is definitely what I'm finding in many of the studies that I'm reviewing. And to put that in kind of, so my research is is not just, the review is kind of the background for my research. And my research actually has to do with speaking with patients who've had these symptoms and these disorders and hearing what their disorders have been like, how they've changed over the years, and then also how they've interacted with medical and professional, like eating disorder professionals And one of the things that I'm finding, so I ask folks specifically about medical complications that they've had documented in a medical chart. And I also ask them about the actual like lived symptoms of it. So for instance, when you are severely restricted or experiencing a lot of compensatory behaviors, specifically purging, your body might become orthostatic, which means that it has difficulty regulating its blood pressure when you change positions, like when you go from sitting to standing or laying to sitting. And so we might see, whereas like a normal, happy, healthy, nourished body, it kind of strives for this place of homeostasis where it, you know, like you stand up and you sit down and it's not like a life-threatening situation and it just kind of adjusts and you're good to go. And we're really thankful for that like autonomic nervous system that does that for us. For somebody who is starving and or who is having a lot of purging behaviors, you might see that their body can no longer perform that kind of really basic task of regulating their blood pressure. And so that's why you might, if you have starved before, you might feel like lightheaded or dizzy when you stand up or after getting up from laying down, things like that. You might feel unsteady on your feet or have sensations of vertigo, that kind of thing. And so in this study, like I'm asking people both about like what has been documented in your chart, what have doctors measured, 
What diagnoses have you received that could be related to your eating disorder? Things like being orthostatic. And what are some of the things that you've experienced, like dizziness when standing or changing positions that might not have even been measured, but maybe you did experience it and it just wasn't caught by the medical professionals in your life? And one of the things that I'm finding is that for many of my patients, especially those who are at the higher end of my high weight spectrum, they haven't had the tests. So they haven't had somebody measure to see if they were orthostatic, even when they were were reporting things like falling when trying to stand, fainting when trying to stand, dizziness. They reported these symptoms to their medical providers and nothing was done. There was no further investigation. And so that type of thing, and that's hard because you look in the literature and for instance, there's sometimes we find like equal rates of something being diagnosed in an atypical versus typical population. And sometimes you might see that there's like one of the studies that I just read found like a lower rate of prolonged QT interval, which is an interval in your heart beat that often gets elongated when people are starving or purging. And that article, they found pretty much very few differences between typical anorexia and atypical. But one of the differences that they did find was less QT elongation in atypical. So it appeared that those folks were actually doing better. And then in their limitation section, they mentioned that not all of the tests were performed on all of the patients because it was based on what clinicians thought needed to be done. And so the critique that I would bring to that is that if this group of patients has been medically similar in every other way, and this is the one way that they haven't been medically similar, but you didn't actually test them all. It's just one of those areas where often in research, you find what you're looking to find. And so that's often in the case, at least with my participants that I'm finding is that many of my smaller participants have been screened and they know what I'm talking about when I ask them, have you been orthostatic? And others, especially some of my higher weight participants um, have not received those screenings and may have actually never even been involved in formal treatment for their eating disorder. So I think a lot of times it's as clinicians, we have to think like, if this person were small and thin and emaciated and telling me they had the symptom, what tests would I run? What assessment would I do? Because sometimes we have to like outsmart our own weight bias because like we just automatically dismiss things that don't fit into our understanding. Oh, such a good point, because it is really weight bias, right? That's causing the clinicians not to screen people for these things that they just think it should only be a smaller bodied person who has this or that the typical quote unquote picture of anorexia is what would go along with this the symptom versus if someone in a larger body has it. I mean, I don't even know how people explain that away, you know? Is it just <laughs> like, oh, I don't know. That's just you. <laughs> like, what? Yeah. I read an article recently, it was in pediatrics, so a pretty good journal, and they were talking about, it was a case study of two adolescents who had been very obese, big scare quotes, and they each developed eating disorders. And for the the girl, she ended up presenting multiple times having amenorrhea, being orthostatic, having a low pulse rate. And they're like, oh, well, you're just really athletic and you just run a lot. And that's probably why your pulse is so low. And that's probably why you lost your period. And that's probably why you have shin splints. And that's probably why your electrolytes are off a little bit. And so there was just this explanation of like healthfulness, like behaviors that we would want to see, um, like a young, active, athletic girl 
without that attention to like, well, like how much are you eating and how much are you exercising? And for the other case, the the male that they reported in this in this article, like they ran him through so many like odd tests, like expensive and unusual disorders, right? Things that are far less common than eating disorders are in adolescence. And they ran all of those tests and cost all that like insurance money and probably all of that worry to this poor family who's wondering like, what kind of weird, unusual disease does my son have? And finally, in the case of both of these these adolescents, their parents advocated hard enough for an eating disorder assessment, but it was way delayed, way delayed from the time that they presented with their first eating disorder symptoms physically, you know, not to mention like the behavioral symptoms, which were present far sooner. They had just progressed so much more into their disease. And had we caught them earlier, my guess, you know, we know that early intervention and early treatment and screening is such a good predictor of outcome. You know, if we caught it earlier, how much better could their trajectories have been? Seriously. And I remember from your presentation at ASDA that you talked about this delay in, in getting treatment, right? What does that look like for people with higher weight anorexia versus people with the so-called traditional anorexia? Yeah. So in my study, I asked people, how old were you when you thought you first had an eating disorder? Like when you like look back and you're like, yep. And not like how old you looking back are, but like when you, when you were an adolescent or a young adult or an adult, like how old were you when you realized this was a problem and you had an eating disorder? And then I asked them how old they were when they first got treatment for their eating disorder. And currently, so I I have updated numbers since ASDEX, but there's currently 28 people in this study and the average is 12 and three quarters years. So 12.75 years between when a person thought they had an eating disorder to when they got eating disorder treatment. And that is actually not including two people who have not received treatment yet. So like their their numbers, like I, I left them in there because that would just like throw off all the averages if I just had these very long numbers. So they're excluded. And that's a range of zero years. So for, for a couple of people, as soon as they realized they had an eating disorder, they got treatment. And the range goes all the way up to 37 years, where one woman waited 37 years. And I believe it's that woman, or no, actually, it's a different woman. You know, another woman told me that she actually went, and this has happened multiple times, where people have gone specifically to medical professionals and said, I think I have an eating disorder. One woman said she went to her doctor, said, I think I have anorexia. The doctor said, no, you weigh too much. And that was the end of the conversation. You know, and she didn't end up receiving help for another 20-ish years. And these are serious diseases. And so that this is not like a representative sample. This is not everybody's story. But this is also like, in some ways, the majority of people in my study have received treatment. And that is also not the norm. Most people with eating disorders do not actually receive formal treatment. And so in some ways, even though I'm saying that this is, you know, this might be a worst case scenario looking at this like 12, 13 year treatment delay. It also might be a better case scenario because these are people who have actually received treatment, not just people. (laughs) Right. I wonder if like those two people that you excluded are actually more the norm, you know, that they think they have an eating disorder and they've never actually received formal treatment because I can also now look back and say like, I think I had so-called atypical anorexia or higher weight anorexia, but I wasn't even higher weight. I was, I was in a 
smaller body, but the so-called normal BMI range and wasn't diagnosed either. You know, even I would have fit into the Ednos category at the time, the eating disorder, not otherwise specified, but similarly to what that one participant you said where she went to the doctor and like said, I think I have an eating disorder. You know, I went to my therapist and I said, hey, you know, my mom and my friends are all kind of worried about me and they think I have an eating disorder. That's silly, right? Like kind of being like in denial about it, but also like opening the door and being like, let me talk about this with my therapist. And she said, oh, no, that's you couldn't have that. Like, you're not thin (laughs) enough, basically. And knowing sort of how I felt and now having worked with a lot of people with eating disorders, like the eating disorder is going to be so inflamed by that kind of rhetoric, right? It's like, you t- you're you telling me I'm not thin enough? I'll show you thin enough, you know? Like, it's yeah. it's a goad. It's a challenge to the eating disorder to get even worse so that eventually someone will pay attention. And, you know, not pay attention like we're doing it for attention, but pay attention <laughs> like take it seriously and give me some help, you know? And so I can only imagine for that participant who was told, you know, you don't have an eating disorder and then 30 years later, like, mm-hmm. gets help. I mean... There's so many people out there like that. And when she did get help, she did find a center that could look at higher weight folks and diagnose treatment for eating disorders. She was actually put into a binge eating disorder group. Oh, no. (laughs) And she never actually, she never got a food plan because of that, because they were trying to do, they were trying to do haze. They were trying to do like a all foods fit approach. And so when she did present for treatment after eating, a very restricted diet from OA. They kind of, I don't, I like, I'm wondering what went on in the assessor's mind because if, if they had asked like what she was eating, they would have, they would have known that she belonged in a restrictive eating disorder group, not in a binge eating disorder group. But I think probably what happened is she went in and probably said like, gosh, I feel like I'm eating so much food. <laughs> <laughs> right. And they probably looked at her and was like, well, you're fat. Okay. Well, we want you to feel comfortable with all the food that you're eating because we're a haze center. And so like, let's talk about making peace with food instead of thinking like, mm, maybe this person needs some refeeding. <laughs> like, what does she think is a lot of food? Because having done like a full clinical diagnostic assessment interview with her that was over an hour. <laughs> like she'd never actually in her lifetime met a criteria for binge eating disorder, but she definitely has met criteria for atypical anorexia. And so, yeah, I think thinking about like when they actually do make it to our treatment doors and they do show up, like, are we, when they say they're eating a lot, are we just accepting that because of our own weight bias in their body? Similarly, if if they say they're eating a little, are we are we failing to like believe them? Are we thinking to ourselves like, well, they have to be eating more than that or they wouldn't look like this? You know, I think it gets flipped for thin patients, right? They might come in and say like, you know, oh, I'm eating so much and we're like, "Oh, really, honey? Like how how much do you think you're eating?" you know? And then they might say like, "I'm not really restricting." And then we're like, "Oh, but let let's look. Maybe you are." You know? So I think we have to like check our assumptions. When we think a patient is lying, when we think somebody that we're treating is lying to us, we need to really think about our own biases too. You know, maybe they are. Eating disorders are tricky. And these are behaviors that carry a lot of guilt and shame. But I think by the time people are asking for help, we need to be able to believe them. Yeah. 
And I think too, it's it's hard for someone who's really in it with an eating disorder to accurately assess yeah. their own eating, right? Like, yes. you know, it's like any like any amount of food seems like a lot of food, exactly. and you know, a tiny amount of food seems so. It's yeah, it's just like and restriction. You know, I think a lot of people also with restrictive eating disorders and really I forget who said it I think someone on the podcast said you know I think all all eating disorders are restrictive eating disorders really which I think was you know very astute because I think a lot of you know most of the time binge eating disorder or bulimia or any other type of eating disorder kind of comes out of this restrictive mindset not like 100% of the time but you know most often but you know for people who are restricting I think there is often an ebb and flow. You know, I experienced this myself where there were times when I was restricting really severely and then times when I was restricting a little less because I, you know, just couldn't keep it up. I was swinging back and forth between binging and restricting and as a natural thing, or I was just trying to maybe ease up a little bit because I realized that the, the restriction I was doing, I wasn't able to sustain. And so in those moments of like slightly easing up on the restriction, I think it's easy to be like, oh, I'm not restricting anymore because it's not like that back there where I was restricted. You know, that was restricting. This is just, this is normal. When really, when you look at it in sort of the continuum of things, you're still way on the restrictive side and have so much more to go to get to a place of truly not restricting. So so I think like, yeah, really kind of getting under that with clients and understanding what people are deeming as restrictive or not restrictive or too much or, you know, binging <laughs> or whatever is so important. Yeah. And doing that without letting weight bias color your assessment. Yeah. I think that's been some of the the most useful parts of the diagnostic interviews that I'm doing is like just asking people like, what does that mean? You said you were binging, like, what did that look like? Can you be a little more specific? <laughs> right. You know, and, and actually get the details instead of just assuming. And I've, I've caught myself doing this as well, right. Where someone reports to me like, oh, I binged and I automatically believe them because I think they know what they're talking about because they've been to eating disorder treatment, right? And so I think like, well, okay, like you've been to treatment, of course you know what a binge is. But then when I actually hear them talk about it, I'm like, oh God, you know, like eating throughout the day because you're not eating anything else is not a binge. That's like maintenance eating when you're really starved. <laughs> like I had a chip and then I had another chip, you know, like that's, and so like learning what this actually looks like for folks and asking more questions and trying not to assume yeah. It's interesting because like, I think when, especially for people who work at eating disorder treatment centers or who've seen a lot of people with eating disorders, it's like maybe tempting to sort of be like, okay, yeah, so you binged. So like, let's go to the next thing, you know, rather than having to like <laughs> tease apart what actually a binge means because it's, you know, maybe sort of boring or old hat or you think you know, but actually getting in there and talking about what it means to a particular person is the work because that can be so illuminating when someone, I know I've, I've had this experience of telling someone that what they were doing, what they thought was a binge was not a binge, that that yes. was actually maintenance eating. Like you said, that was sustaining them through starvation. And it's like some people are just gobsmacked by that. Some people are are also really defensive about it. And, you know, you have to sort of manage whatever comes up for the person. But I think it can be can be so illuminating. And for a person who's in the right mind frame to take that in, I think it can be extremely healing. Give them permission to not think of something as a binge and demonize it, but actually say like, oh, my body needs this. I'm so glad you brought that up because that's something that I'm just discovering 
more and more the more that I do these interviews. And I, you know, I did, I, <laughs> I filled out like an extra like 20 or 40 page supplement for my ethics board so that I could like give people their results back, right? Mm. <laughs> Which I just feel like is just ethical anyway, right? Like they yeah. give us information, we let them keep ownership of it. But so something that I get to do in the interviews is just be like, hey, like, look, either like, okay, like, you know, you thought you had binge eating disorder your whole life, but like, actually, like you only would have met criteria like this part of your life. And that's in the context of all of this lifelong restriction and starvation or to, you know, to say like, Hey, look, you know, like we can actually put a name to some of the things that you're doing. And, and as imperfect as our diagnostic system is, and I think it is significantly effed up and imperfect. There's something very powerful about being able to say like, Hey, this is no, this isn't, maybe this isn't about me being a bad person or being bad at dieting or being bad at even having an eating disorder, right? Like, I, I don't know how many times I've heard, like, I can't even get an eating disorder, right? Like, oh, yeah. maybe it's not about that. Maybe, like, we're just calling it by the wrong name, you know? And, and that, like, clinical moment, like you said, it can be so healing. And, you know, because I, I have many, I would say probably at least 25% of the folks in the study that responded to my flyer for atypical anorexia because like they looked at the flyer, it listed some symptoms. They're like, Hey, that's me. I'm going to call this lady. Like, so those people, like they came to my study and they thought they had binge eating disorder. And after the very long in-depth clinical <laughs> diagnostic interview they're like, it's like, actually, no, like you haven't had that. And I, and I don't say that to like demonize or like pathologize binge eating disorder more so than any other eating disorder. I'm trying to say it that like folks are very confused <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> about, about the behavior because diet culture is so pervasive and it says, Hey, if you eat a donut, you're having a sweet binge. Or if you, you know, if you eat a a bag of M&Ms watching TV, you know, or whatever. Like if you eat ice cream out of the container while watching a TV show, like you're out of control. Yeah, that's binge eating. Exactly. You have a problem. <laughs> because we have these like cultural like myths in our head, I think people are walking around like A, thinking that they have disorders that they don't and like B, not getting help for the disorders that they do. <laughs> oh, that's such a good point. I had this like positive note that I kind of wanted to like just bring up. So I said that there were two women that hadn't received treatment. And so I left them out of that treatment delay. Um, and they were actually at the beginning of the study, there were three women. And one of them, like, so I saw her for her first interview. And then I see her like six months later, right? And so I, at her second interview, I was like talking with her and she's like, oh yeah, I'm in treatment now. And I was like, oh, okay, that's cool. I was like, when did, when did you get, when did that start? Because you know, she's in her early 30s. When I saw her the first time, she was severely restricted, going long periods without food and very, very much under eating. And she was like, oh, well, I, you know, I got help about two weeks after our first interview. And I was like, really? Why? <laughs> you know? And she said, well, when we were meeting and I was talking to you about what I was eating, you told me, that I was eating a level of food that would be consistent with anorexia. And I was like, okay. And she's like, so I called somebody. <laughs> and so I'm not doing an interventional study. Like I'm not trying to get people in treatment and, um, 
And I also do really like this is also it's like pretty observational. So this doesn't mess up my results. Like if you want to go get treatment and this had an impact on you, fine. Like there's no control group. But what that says to me is that like a small acknowledgement that what someone's doing could be problematic could have a really tremendous impact on that person. All I said was, hey, you're not eating a lot. What you're eating is really like a small amount of food and maybe you should get help. I didn't even actually say maybe you should get help. I All I just said is, hey, your eating is consistent with someone who has anorexia. And that was enough for this person who had already been dealing with this for however long. It was enough to give her that extra push to like go out and seek treatment and actually get it. But I'm just thinking of like that that moment that we have with clients when we have the chance to like give a diagnosis or like affirm that someone's eating is not enough that could have like a real impact on their trajectory moving forward. That's incredible. That is such a positive note to end on, I think, because I think a lot of clinicians are listening to this and also a lot of people who maybe have never had that kind of validation in their own lives. And, you know, maybe we can give that to people here through this too, just to recognize that maybe what you've always thought as binge eating or as eating enough really isn't. And I think that's pretty likely living in diet culture, you know, for anyone who has a disordered relationship with food and thinks maybe it's falling on the side of quote unquote too much. Pretty much everyone I see who thinks they're eating quote unquote too much is actually not eating enough, whether it's on the flip side of a binge or whether they're categorizing something as a binge that actually is just sustaining eating. So I think this is very important to bring to light. Oh my God, I could talk to you forever. This is so fascinating. And I, I, yeah, we'll have to have another episode down the line where we dig into lots more of this research once you have, have more of it published and ready to go and stuff too. Awesome. Yeah, thank you so much. And tell us where people can find you and learn more about your work. <laughs> I, I, I wish I had it. Right now I'm just on Facebook at Aaron Harrop. <laughs> I don't have a website or anything, but you can feel free to look me up at Aaron Harrop at gmail.com. And I am still recruiting for folks that have had this experience of restricting self-starvation or excessive compensation, but your body weight is either considered not low enough or quote normal or quote higher weight. So yeah, feel free. I'm sure there'll be many, many folks listening who will fall into that camp. So definitely want to encourage them to reach out and we'll put that in the show notes, your, your email and your Facebook and stuff so people can find you and connect. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much, Erin. Such a pleasure talking with you. Likewise. <laughs> so that's our show. Thanks again so much to Erin Harrop for being here on this episode. And thanks to you for listening. If you're looking for some guidance from me to get started on your own anti-diet journey, grab my free audio guide, Seven Simple Strategies for Finding Peace and Freedom with Food. Just go to christyharrison.com slash strategies to get it. That's christyharrison.com slash strategies. If you've gotten something out of this podcast, please help us reach more people who need to hear the anti-diet message by sharing this episode on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. You can also leave us a nice rating and review in your podcast provider of choice, which is another way to help new listeners discover us and help the podcast grow. And it's always so appreciated by me. To get full show notes from this episode, including all the resources we mentioned, plus a full transcript, go to christyharrison.com slash 178. That's christyharrison.com slash 178. And to get the transcript, just scroll down to the bottom of the page and enter your email address.
This episode was brought to you by my Intuitive Eating online course. If you're ready to leave diet culture behind in 2019, join the course and become a part of an amazing community of people who will support you on your path to intuitive eating. Learn more and sign up for the course at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. And now through New Year's, we're offering gift subscriptions to the course as well. It's the perfect present for that loved one on your list who needs some anti-diet inspiration or put it on your wish list so that your friends and family know how to get it for you. You can go to christyharrison.com slash gift to get the gift subscriptions now. That's christyharrison.com slash gift. A big thanks to our editor and engineer, Mike Lalonde, and to my Food Psych Programs team, including our community and content associate, Vinci Chue, our administrative assistant, Julianne Watasek, and our transcript assistant, Kiara McClellan, for helping me out with all the moving parts that go into producing this show every week. Our album art was photographed by Abby Moore Photography and designed by Meredith Noble, and the music you're hearing behind me now is by a band called AWOL, and the track is called Food, used under the Creative Commons license. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay psyched. Stupid or scared, no work in the kitchen now. 